Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. This conversation is brought to you by Chanel. A visionary woman whose influence on the arts continues even today, Gabrielle Chanel created her life and her legend on her own terms. Discover her story at InsideChanel.com. Gabrielle Chanel grew up with cinema. Its use of movement revolutionized image just as she did with women's appearances. Garnier and Renoir credited the fashion designer as costume designer in their films. MGM invited her to Hollywood to give its stars a new look. She understood that actresses like Homi Schneider, Elizabeth Taylor and Jane Fonda would be the best ambassadors for her talent. Her timeless modernity entranced the actors of the French New Wave. Today, Chanel continues to leave her mark on the silver screen. Watch the film Gabrielle Chanel in cinema at InsideChanel.com. When they were wheeling me into the, the operating theater, you know, they make small talk with you. They ask you, um, what do you, you know, what do you do? <laughs> what do you like? And I, I told them, um, I said, I'm a writer. <laughs> and it really, I think, was one of those moments where I felt that moment of, do I say like what I am or do I say what I want to be? I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It is the first new episode of 2021 and the beginning of an exciting new phase for this show. Starting today, we are a weekly ongoing podcast. Every Wednesday, we're going to be releasing a new conversation all through this year and 
like maybe forever or until further notice or as long as it's still fun. And we are excited and we are glad to have you along for the journey. As usual, you can write to us via our website, which is www.thisisthresholds.com with guest requests, questions, and to tell us how you think we're doing. We're starting off this new year with a conversation with Raven Lalani, who is maybe the most celebrated debut novelist of last year. Her her book, Luster, won the Kirkus Prize. It was shortlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. It was on everyone's year-end best books of 2020 lists. Um, and it's it's a really stunning book. Uh, its protagonist, Edie, is a young Black woman, an aspiring painter who seems to kind of float through New York City, a little alienated, a little bit self-destructive. And she gets into a relationship with a married man and through him, his wife and their adopted daughter. It's a book about desire and art and bodies. And I don't know, the word I want to use is like, is messiness or failure. Um, and our conversation was a lot about art and risk and failure and messiness and the body as a backdrop for that drama. She came on to talk about the year in her life when she was struggling to articulate even to herself that she wanted to commit to being a writer. And at the same time, she was experiencing this mysterious, serious ailment. And more broadly, our conversation and her work um, touched on the question of how when a person is moving through the world, that person imprints themselves on the world and the world imprints on that person. How we do that with our bodies, um, but also the way that art is a medium for that kind of reciprocal touch. And then also we had a really joyful plot twist mid-conversation uh, when we found out about our mutual experience of watching autopsies. So uh, heads up for that if you're a little squeamish, um, though it's not too gory. And uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. What happened was I just kind of like around my 26th birthday, um, I, I kind of woke up that I, I couldn't breathe, <laughs> you know, I, I, I couldn't breathe. Um, and, um, I kind of spent, Do you mean literally you felt that like you, you woke up feeling like you couldn't breathe? Literally. Yes. Um, and I, <laughs> I have a number of theories of why, you know, I had started riding my bike regularly around DC and it was a really hot and humid summer. And, uh, I thought my body was having a reaction to that. And there were also kind of these big family things happening. Um, but I began over the past kind of six months to uh, to try and see specialists to figure out what was happening with me, you know. And kind of at the same time that was happening, <laughs> I, was some, I was trying to get into grad school. You know, I was really trying to make um, make that move back to New York so that I could, you know, one, go back to what is my home, um, but also perhaps get into a program where I had the space and like the kind of permission to give myself over entirely to writing. Um, so like the most literal <laughs> moment I could, could feel that um, was like kind of a shift um, in my life, which is how I kind of uh, interpreted, you know, this mission statement was I, I, I reached a point where I... Um, I really just felt suddenly that time was finite <laughs> and my body was kind of doing this thing that I, I didn't understand, but that was kind of compounding this feeling that, that time was finite. 
and I couldn't, no one was giving me any real answers. Um, and I just kind of had, I felt that I have to do something with this time that I have. Um, and that moment in life, uh, those collection, that collection of moments, um, that was, I think where my life kind of, um, where it began to, to turn. <laughs> I, that, I mean, I feel like that sounds extremely dramatic. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a collection of moments, but also, um, a single moment in which I think my body, uh, was trying to tell me something. <laughs> Did that feeling of not being able to breathe start to resolve once you had had, I don't know, the resulting existential realization? So what happened with that, um, I, I, I mean, I, I absolutely don't think it's a coincidence. That happened sort of um, around the same time I was trying to kind of uproot my whole life and, and make a go of writing I mean I should also say that um, it happened around the time when my brother who was terminally ill um, kind of moved back in with my family because he could no longer take care of himself um, so there was a lot happening and a lot that I think was um, my body was responding to but um, I actually did I, I went like I had surgery <laughs> I had I had oh, um, wow. major thoracic surgery um, I saw like a handful of, of specialists. No one could tell me what was wrong. It was kind of getting worse. Um, and I just remember the way that kind of came up against that, that summer in DC, you know, summer is like my season. Uh, I'm, I'm like alive and, uh, I really, truly most myself. And it felt so strange that the season that I loved the most was kind of, um, was exacerbating this thing that was going on to my body. You know, the air was thick. I just remember that, that feeling of gasping for air. And, uh, it was like, it was, it was winter. Um, yeah, it was winter or maybe late fall. By the time I, I, I went for a, um, I forget what the actual terminology is, but I went for like a MRI or an imaging to try and figure out what was happening. And they found a shadow. And, and I, I like want to take an aside and say that like I found out much later after the fact that that Nabokov had had a similar shadow <laughs> in a similar place that haunted him for his entire life. Um, but I, I had a shadow between my lungs behind my heart. So it was a um, uh, it was a it's a very hard place to access. You know, it couldn't be like looked at casually. Um, and they didn't know what it was or if it was anything to worry about, but with everything that was happening, we decided to kind of look into it. Um, and, uh, the only way to do that was major surgery. So I went in, um, they like went in through my back with a camera and, um, they didn't find anything. <laughs> they what? didn't find anything. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it was a really, and, and then shortly after, shortly after I went for that surgery, then, you know, as my body was healing, it started to resolve. So, I mean, I hate to not be able to answer, to like kind of offer a <laughs> clear cut, um, kind of answer as to what was happening, but, um, that is sort of, that's a, that is definitely a moment in my life where, um, I don't know, I think, I think those kind of conditions kind of all came together to give me this sense of um, the sense of the time that I had, I had to kind of seize it. 
And I will say, um, and this is actually in the book. I kind of repurposed it for um, the story. You know, I kind of changed a few things. But when they were wheeling me into the, uh, like the, the, the operating theater, you know, they make small talk with you. They ask you, um, what do you, you know, what do you do? <laughs> what do you like? And I, I told them, um, I said, I'm a writer. <laughs> and it really, I think, was one of those moments where I felt that moment of, do I say like what I am or do I say what I want to be? And, um, you know, at that moment, I, I was trying to and wanting to be a writer. And I just remember that moment felt so fraught <laughs> because I was about to go in for this major surgery and I had to say that thing aloud. Um, and I think, yeah, that was just, that was just a moment where I just felt both aware of kind of the, the preciousness of time, my, the vulnerability of my body. Um, but also that there is this thing that I really wanted to give myself over to entirely. And what had been keeping you from that? Like what had, um, like, why hadn't you done that already? So, um, I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of, there are, I feel like there are a few answers to that. One is that, you know, I had, <laughs> I was scared of, of losing my stability. You know, I, I had, the reason I was even in like a different state to begin with was because I, uh, I followed a job there. You know, I, I, I truly could not afford to not have a job. You know, I had insane student debt, you know, I had to make rent and, um, my family was, was kind of unable to help in any way. Um, and so, and that was the case, you know, when I was, when I had, was finally back in the city where I, I, where I followed that job, um, you know, I eventually left it <laughs> and kind of began a string of, of jobs where I was searching for something that would be meaningful, but that kind of, um, each job, uh, kind of came with its own challenges and, and disappointments. And, but it was still in, in a, in a practical sense, how I was eating, you know, how I was paying my students at. And I knew that to one, to uproot my life and go back to New York, an extremely expensive city. Um, I would have to have more means than I did. You know, I, I, that it was sort of a, a risk that, um, you know, I actually, that's why I started working for Postmates, which is also something I repurposed for the book. Um, like after I got into my MFA program, I was, I felt this incredible euphoria, but then immediately just panic. Like, how am I going to afford that? You know? And, yeah. uh, so I started working for Postmates to try and build up a cushion. And in a way, that's why, how I kind of think about leaving DC is like kind of <laughs> going door to door to door, you know, with, um, fries and cigarettes. Um, and, uh, so for me, like the biggest, the biggest kind of, um, consideration was, I don't know if I can afford this. The second, and I think more spiritual, um, reason why I held off for so long was I didn't, um, I don't know. It, it, it felt, it felt like, um, it felt impractical, you know, mm -hmm. it felt impractical to uproot my life, um, to attend a program where there is no, you know, 
promise of what you might end up with. You know, it, it felt like hubris because I had, I had had really great teachers who told me, you want to do this thing, um, make sure that you have um, <laughs> a job that you can count on, you know, to kind of pay the bills. Like if you're going to be a writer, it's going to be both. It's never just one or the other. And so I, I really felt that, um, I felt that, I mean, it, yeah, it just didn't feel like a thing that, um, yeah, it, it felt like, <laughs> yeah, it felt deeply impractical, um, to kind of uproot my life, uh, for, um, for a thing that I knew the probability of, of breaking through was, was low. Um, but I, but I really had to try, like, yeah, I had to try. Um, so yeah. It, and also like I, I had, um, my, a partner, so it wasn't just me that I was uprooting. It was like, I was also uh, uprooting another life. And so it meant considering that, that, that part of it. Um, so yeah, like, was I good enough? Could I afford it? You know, those are the two things. The first thing I ever did that I loved was paintings. Um, I came up in a great public school that had a great art program and um, a lot of people in my family were, were artists. I mean, they had like day jobs that were not, had nothing to do with their art, but um, you know, because they were artists and because I came up in an environment where critique was central, I was extremely aware of the way that um, the arts are competitive. <laughs> you know, they're extremely <laughs> competitive. Um, and uh so there is it in that way it you're, it did feel like um but to say I'm gonna do this thing, I'm gonna uproot my life, there there then has to be this you are in doing that, you are um you are saying like I am good enough, right? <laughs> I am good enough. Yeah. Like perhaps um, you know, <laughs> perhaps I can make it. And that's like I mean it's a it's a scary, um, it's a kind of necessary faith to have perhaps, but it's a scary, it's a scary thing to commit to because it, um, you know, it's not self-protective. It, it opens you up to failure in an entirely different way. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is the way in which you feel like, if you feel like there's any parallel between the craft of painting as you learned and practiced it and the craft of writing as you are practicing it now. 100%. Um, I think, <laughs> well, not to talk about failure again, but I, I really do think that um, because it was a thing I really loved painting um, and was the kind of very first bit of our artistic failure I, I ever felt and kind of had to grapple with that even just those, that those themes, you know, what it, what it feels like to, to grapple with your limits, um, to kind of try and sustain faith in yourself when you, um, when you kind of see the, the real chasm between what you want to do and what you actually can do. Um, and I, can't stop writing about it. You know, Lester is very much that, you know, she's, Edie is a person who 
is constantly grappling with the limits of her skill, but also what it means to try and replicate your reality on the canvas when um, your reality as a Black woman is distorted by the requirement for performance. Um, but also, I think, uh, more literally in, in the craft, that painting, uh, painting and writing are the connective tissue between them is, is that, uh, is that um, necessity of observation, of close observation. Um, I think that that is sort of like the, a building block of, of science, right? Observation and study. Um, and I, I feel like the best art treats, treats that, you know, treats life, treats humanity <laughs> as, as a kind of, um, as a thing that should be looked at closely, um, that deserves a, a level of study that is almost perverse <laughs> in its, hmm. you know, um, in its intensity. Um, but also that that the small, that the kind of small and mundane parts of life are also worth, you know, that scrutiny. Um, and for me, you know, I, I only ever paint faces or, or bodies. It's all very like it's portraiture, it's anatomical, and that too is um, in in my writing. I, I really just feel uh, I'm most excited by uh, with writing and even reading um, books that um, talk about the body. Uh, in a way that feels, I don't know, in a way that feels kind of closely examined, um, uh, unvarnished. Yeah, there's so much of that in Lester, whether it's whether it's the the writing that is describing sex or the writing that is describing pain or the way that Rebecca um, does performs autopsies for a living, yeah. and that there's so much of the of the body in a in an unvarnished state, sort of as you were saying. Yeah. I, I wondered um, if you could tell me a little bit more about that, like why that feels like such a, a fascination and something that seems to be manifesting in your work, kind of whether it's painting or writing. You know, I think, and I think with Rebecca, one of the, <laughs> one of the reasons her, that is her job is because my, my mother used to do that work um, she went back to school when I was in high school for mortuary science. And mm. uh, it was really important for her to feel that the dead were sent off with dignity. Um, like early in my, <laughs> early in my childhood, you know, we, I, we would go to a funeral, you know, and we would go see the body and my mom would always say, Oh, you know, she doesn't look like herself. Oh, the lipstick, you know, and <laughs> she very much, wanted to so she wanted to work on the cosmetic side you know um but uh that business is very hard to break into if you don't kind of already have like a family operation and so she started working at the va as a medical examiner and um i watched her work before i i left for college and um it was it really just left an impression on me you know this was sort of like later in life um i mean later in life <laughs> Um, but you know, like it was, I was maybe 19, 18, something like that. And I, uh, so I had probably developed some sensibilities before then around the body, but I just remember watching her work and, 
and she would kind of, as she was going through, you know, this kind of um, disassembling the body and taking out all the organs that need to be kind of removed before the body is prepared, you know, she would say, this is what it looks like when a person smokes, when a person drinks, etc. And it like struck me the way the body keeps record, you know, and it struck me too the way it's like intricately made. Um, and um, I think because I was already inclined um, like to be curious about the body from having, you know, from painting, um, I, I think that just, um, yeah, that, that felt, that's a thing that I feel like I'm constantly writing towards, like the miracle really of the human body, but also um, the drama of, of the female body, especially, you know, the drama that we are meant uh, as w women to kind of, uh, to, to pretty up and suppress. So there is like this um, private language, I think, around our bodies that I feel um, really drawn to excavating. Raven, that is so strange. I worked um, for a couple years on a story about medical examiners, a, 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 a recorded story about medical examiners and forensic pathologists. And so for that, I spent weeks and weeks just following them and watching them work and watching a lot of autopsies. And I came out of that project completely obsessed by the details that get encoded in, in a body and the way oh that the God. body holds. holds it's, it's very weird that you're saying that because I what now is making me wonder, like, is this just like the, 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 <laughs> like the writer's response to watching an autopsy is to get like really obsessed with the way that you can open a body and read it like yes. a text. Um, like maybe this is, this is clearly not an original preoccupation I'm having because you have like you have it too. Um, that's so wild. No, and, but and it is like a like miraculous thing. Like I just, I'm just curious. Like how did like how did it feel like the first time that you? If I'm allowed to ask you questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. You yeah. can ask questions. Uh, I think the first time. You mean the first time I watched an autopsy? Yeah. Um, I think I felt afraid. Um, yes. in this way that was really interesting because it was like I was having a really intense physical fear response, like my adrenaline was through yes. the roof. Yes. And I think it, at the time it felt like my body was recognizing that something terrible was happening to another body in my presence, yeah. like that, that there was, and it was I, the, the medical examiner who was doing the autopsy, it was this really kind and lovely man um, who he's the he's the medical examiner for um, Cuyahoga County, which is Cleveland. And he is this like very soft spoken guy. And he was like, you're you might feel panicky and you might feel sort of <sighs> nauseous. And yeah. that's OK. Like your body is recognizing that something unnatural is happening and that's normal. Like it's yes. OK. Yeah. And I had this. It, it, so it, I had this like really intense like I wasn't really emotionally upset, but there were parts of the process where I felt like a very physical terror um, that yes. surprised me because I didn't like I could I, I knew that nothing bad was happening in that room, but I just had this really intense urge to like run away. I didn't I didn't get nauseous, but I I feel it, that I did sort of so shake. much. I really feel Does that, that what so happened much. to you. 
Well, I mean, I actually, it was more like the sort of anticipation of like, I remember kind of waiting behind that big like metal door and, and in a way it was like kind of, (laughs) um, entangled with wanting not to disappoint my mom and to be like, you know, (laughs) steely enough to kind of witness that. But, um, totally. I was having this, like, I'm a journalist and I'm supposed to have a, and I, and I'm here because I have a strong stomach. And so I need to just be as impassive (laughs) as possible. Uh, which is so funny because other people somehow are allowed to watch that and like faint. And I was like, no, I have to be like really like nonchalant about this. That's what I thought might happen, that I, that I might faint. And I remember putting on the hazmat suit and, and just thinking like, gosh, like what if, what if that happens? Um, and being worried about my, what my response would be once I was in the room. But when I, when I was finally in the room, I it really just immediately, it felt, I mean, it also, I mean, it just felt deeply surreal, but also miraculous. Like it did feel just like a beautiful thing, but it's, it kind of is interesting to me the way, um, you put that, that, um, the feeling of being alive and, and witnessing that and sort of processing that is an unnatural thing. My, my first thought to that was like, but isn't death natural, but you're right. You know, like across, um, species, right. Animals are sensitive to like kind of members among them that are wounded or that are sick. Right. And they stay away. Mm -hmm. Like there's this kind of inherent thing inside us that is, that finds that, um, disturbing, (laughs) you know, even if we're not animals that have that like grief mechanism. Yeah. And it was, to me, I think it was the process of taking apart a body that felt unnatural. Like it wasn't the presence of death in the room. It was the way that like an autopsy requires you to complete, to do something to a body that in any other context would be an absolutely horrendous thing to do. Right. And in that, in in that context, it's a care gesture, right? Like it is, it is a way of taking care of that body. Um, But like in any other context, it would be the most profane thing you could possibly do. And, and that felt to me like the, the, like the tension that felt unnatural um, more than more than like death itself. Yes, uh, you know that that also kind of it felt like a natural, um, like a natural kind of component about a story about art as well, right? You know, to talk about to depict uh, an artist trying to um, practice her craft. If I had to, you know, traditionally the study of art, you use cadavers, mm-hmm. and so it felt. You know, I think that that, um, gosh, right, like, what was it, Da Vinci? Yeah, I think Da Vinci, like, he filled, he once filled um, a human brain, you know, with with wax. You know, so, like, the wax filled the, um, like, the, the fissures or, like, the kind of spaces in between the, those wrinkles. And so that then he then, this is probably, like, you might want to fact check this, but then he then, like, press the brain onto, I think, some sort of surface paper and got a negative image. And that is like the, that's the birth of the MRI. So I, you know, I think that art is deeply intertwined, um, with this kind of disassembly of the body. Um, and you feel that, you know, as an art student, um, and I, I wanted to, yeah, I needed to kind of include that, um, in this story about uh, an artist trying to, um, you know, trying to kind of replicate 
the reality that she exists in. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit how about how you decided to work that into the book? Like where, why you put it where it was and how you wanted it to, to manifest? Sure. I mean, so, I mean, part of it was uh, what we were just talking about where I, I wanted first to kind of give um, Rebecca as a character, a job that I thought suited her, you know, as a person who is uh, curious, um, but also extremely in control. You know, she's a person who um, is interested in like those kind of in the components of a thing. Um, but also a person along the kind of narrative that has enormous control. And there is something uh, kind of godlike about that work. (laughs) But also I think that the, you know, having a body be central um, was necessary in in depicting that art making process, which um, I think there is a, there is like a kind of challenge in depicting any kind of work on the page um, especially if that work is, um, um, if that work is kind of largely psychological, the kind of thing you have to conjure in your mind before it is a thing on a page or on a canvas. And, um, so it, it provided, gave me, um, a really vivid and concrete way to represent that art making, um, but also to kind of um, to not just to talk about the kind of traditional study of cadavers and art or to give Rebecca kind of flesh out her character um, or to kind of create this conspiracy between these two women. Um, but then to kind of to talk about that record keeping, to talk about um, what it means to um, to kind of hold the impressions um that you kind of bear as you move through the world, um, but also what it means to kind of, for that relationship to be reciprocal, you know, that the world isn't just happening to you, but that what it means when you're happening to the world, which I think is um, kind of central to, to the story of, um, you know, they, they take apart a body and uh, Rebecca is disturbed by the fact that it, she's opened it up and is entirely pristine, you know, (laughs) what it means to move through the world um, and, uh, and let it touch you. (laughs) I think that that is something I was trying to write toward. Yeah, I really love that. I'm struck by the resonance between that and the story you told me at the like 30 minutes ago yeah. about how so much of this book was precipitated by like a shadow in your own body that then vanished, you know, that then, yeah. you know, they went in and there was nothing there. There was no yeah. mark where they thought there was supposed to be a mark. Gosh. Yeah. You know, and I, I just, I just remember, God, I just remember that, that moment. And um, there's, I mean, there's so much to be sad about what it means to be a black woman trying to get people to believe your bodily reality, <laughs> you know, that, that, that yeah. was sort of alongside me seeking help, right? There is this sort of, it felt as if, um, you know, I had alongside me not being able to breathe were these extremely kind of visible accounts of a very famous, very powerful black women who, who had gone on record talking about how doctors wouldn't believe them, right? Yeah. <laughs> how, like, I think it, 
one of the one that comes to mind is I think when Serena Williams was giving birth, you know, she yeah, yeah. Uh, had those uh, blood clots and really truly had to advocate in like in the midst of, of not in the midst of giving birth, but like in that moment for her own life. Um, and like there are right plenty of examples um, around the way that kind of black women have have to advocate um, for a reality that we are often asked to disbelieve. And so there was there was an element of that where I felt I mean, I felt almost more situated in my body because I had to be, you know, I had to be in order to be my own advocate. Uh, and so that, too, I think, you know, is kind of more like. I was going to say tacitly, but maybe not. Maybe it's kind of more overtly in the text. But this this entire reality that Edie is holding inside her um, that is at odds with um, the kind of the performance, um, the image um, that she is projecting in order to move safely through the world. You know, um, the real uh, the real kind of peril in even articulating. Your reality is is so real for a lot of us. It strikes me that, um, like the language that doctors use when they're talking about whether or not they believe a patient, is they talk about whether or not they're good or bad narrators of themselves. Like that, that, yeah. that patient's an unreliable narrator, yeah. um, which means that they, they don't believe that that, that that patient is, um, is telling their own story well, is, is reporting, uh, is like reporting from inside the experience of their own body properly. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it like, it, when you said this happened maybe four years ago, it, it did kind of ring in my ear that that was the time that we started to talk that that like mainstream white American discourse started to include an acknowledgement of the fact that black women are routinely told that they're unreliable narrators of their own bodies. Um, right. And Edie is like so much a character who seems to be trying to, to, to make her own narration heard at the same time as she's trying to figure out what, what her narration is going to be. 100%, 100%. And I mean, I think that's a big part of why, I mean, why she, it's not even just like the kind of structural impediments to, to making art that she is kind of trying to navigate for the self-sabotage that is natural <laughs> to the process. It's this, um, it's the way that you, the way that you become oriented when you are uh, aware of yourself, <laughs> aware of yourself as a narrator, you know, like, and she is, there's a, there's a, there's a, like a, um, there's a level of awareness uh, that is, uh, that disembodies you, right? Where you are aware of the kind of, you're aware of the expectation of, uh, like a more a palatable avatar of a credible narrator, and in the effort to in the effort to um, to kind of shape shift into the person that perhaps would be loved or be believed, your own reality is um, is distorted, and that has uh, I mean that has enormous bearing on what she can actually produce. 
Uh, so that, that, you know, I think that that it both affects, you know, our, our literal, um, our literal health, um, and lifespan, but also our sort of, um, our generative, uh, our generative brains. I don't know how to exactly put that, but I think that comes out into, um, the art that we would, that we would try to make, um, the connections that we, you know, seek out, it ripples throughout this expectation that we, that we represent ourselves in a way that is acceptable to the audience we're, we're in front of. It's two risks you're, you're describing having taken, both of which are really big risks after your sort of experience of feeling like you couldn't breathe for a while. And the first risk is like being bold enough to say, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm going to be a writer. And the second is then to be the kind of writer who wants to challenge that, um, seems to, maybe I shouldn't, I don't want to put words in your mouth with regards to your intention, but it seems like this is a book that really wants to challenge the parameters of that kind of like acceptable frame within which, uh, you know, you feel like you're supposed to be self-describing or, you know, describing, describing someone's subjectivity. 100%. Like I, I thought that in writing this book, my, my main mission, um, <laughs> my main mission was to write against um, this idea of stoicism, this idea of containment. Um, I, I really felt that it was more humane, um, right? I mean, actually more humane to allow the narrator to be unreliable as I think we are, yeah. you know, um, the idea that she is not always her own best representative, you know, that there are moments in which she processes imperfectly and, um, but which in real life, um, the ramifications of that for black women, um, are steep. Um, you know, so I think that it, it, it works because it's fiction, you know, but it yeah. was, it was me, uh, wanting to afford a black woman that right on the page. Um, uh, yeah. How does it feel being on the other side of those two big leaps? Um, it feels, it feels great. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it does. I, it was definitely, you know, um, it wasn't pretty, <laughs> like, you know? um, but it, it was, it was really worth it. You know, I feel, um, the, the really the moment that I I came back and and to New York I think and felt that I was at least back on the trajectory of of pursuing this in a way that felt um, like I was putting my entire self into it you know that I felt even though that I even though at the time you know I felt still far away from it that I was kind of at least really truly in pursuit of it um and to be on the other side um like to have uh, you know a book in the world and to be able to you know to have a book in the world that I was able to write candidly you know able to as like uh, a human black woman who perhaps doesn't enjoy um all of the kind of um <laughs> you know the the right to chaos that perhaps Edie does um <laughs> it was it was a deeply freeing 
experience to write it as it was to, to put myself, um, my entire self into the pursuit of my art. Um, though I, of course, every time I want to, I want to acknowledge that, um, that was an enormous privilege. You know, I do think that if, um, one thing went wrong, you know, and, and I think many things threatened to, even in the, in the middle of writing this book, you know, there are a few times when I, I didn't know if I would finish. Um, but it, it, it feels like a thing that could have easily not have happened. And so being on the other side of it, I feel the, I feel the, you know, how much I've worked for it, but also like the incredible luck. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.